Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, we're looking at entertainment, culture, religion and society in ancient Rome, as well as how it's been represented on television and in film. And we'll be finding out what life was really like in the age of Caesar, all the way up to the sack of Rome. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Some lovely emails during the week about our show on Macbeth last week. Billy emailed in to say that he really enjoyed the show, loved Macbeth when it was his Leaving Cert play and he has seen it more than any other play and someone else emailed in to say that Macbeth is one of the most interesting plays to watch on stage because of all of the supernatural elements and this person very much enjoyed the discussion as well. Well if you do want to listen back to our discussion on William Shakespeare's great tragedy Macbeth and our investigation into why this story of witchcraft, murder and madness continues to exert such a powerful hold on readers and audiences today. Just uh, listen back by going to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's show is on the rise and fall of Rome, focusing on entertainment, culture and society in the ancient world. And I'm delighted to welcome our distinguished panel of experts to discuss what life was really like with me. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rebecca Usherwood, who lectures in the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on the political and cultural history of the Roman and later Roman Empire, especially the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. And she's the author of Political Memory and the Constantinian Dynasty, Fashioning disgrace. Dr. Jonathan Colston lectures in the School of Classics at the University of St. Andrews and is an expert on Roman army studies, Roman military equipment, ancient warfare and Roman art and architecture and his books include the edited collection Cavalry in the Roman World. Paul Crystal is an author, history consultant and broadcaster and his books include Rome, Republic into Empire, Women in Ancient Rome and When in Rome, Social Life in Ancient Rome and his new book will be published in September, The Book in the Ancient World, How the Wisdom of the Ages Was Preserved. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome but Rebecca, I might begin with you and we we can sometimes spend an awful lot about the, the rise of Rome and the greatness of Rome but I want to begin with the decline of Rome and when Rome stopped being the centre of everything you still had an empire but it really wasn't as focused on 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 the capital city as it was yeah so this was a slow change over time so increasingly emperors were closer to the frontiers where the threats were and increasingly they spent less and less time in the city of Rome and this changed the way um, the city of Rome socially worked. So there was still an extremely important aristocracy there but over time, especially by the third century, it was defined by imperial absence more than presence. Um, but And sort of, for example, uh, when Rome was sacked in the year 410, uh, the emperor was not in Rome. He was actually in Ravenna, which is not that far away. But it was a more protected city to be in. So what we see it is it is something that happens very quickly, but also very slowly over time. So, for example, Marcus Aurelius spent very little of the latter part of his reign in the city of Rome. And Rome was just increasingly marginalized as time goes on. But within that power vacuum, there were very important aristocrats coming to who were the, the emperor could not afford to marginalize in any way. And did anyone predict this as it was happening? Did people say, you know, this isn't going to last, we're making these crucial strategic mistakes? Or did they just go along and think that they were invincible and that it would last forever? 
I think it's important not to equate the decline of the Roman Empire with the decline of the city of Rome. Over time, what had happened is what it meant to be Roman had changed a great deal. Earlier on, we have this idea as the empire as being the empire of Rome and Italy. And over time, this had changed. So one example of this is we see for the first time Italy and Rome being taxed. So previously, you know, other places paid tax into Rome and Italy. And this changes over time. So we have an evening out of the differences between the center and the provinces. Um, So the sack of Rome when it happened in 410 was an important symbolic moment. But actually, in terms of the strategic impact, wasn't, I mean, they, the Goths came, they sacked for three days. Uh, they were Christian, so they respected anyone, we are told, who took refuge in churches and they left and the city of Rome went on. So I think we have to be careful of not equating what happened in the wider Roman Empire with what actually happened in the city of Rome. So it had gone beyond just the city and it was now even able to survive the fall of the city. Yeah, well, the sack of the city, and it was one of several sacks. It was sacked again in the mid-5th century, which was a longer and, you know, a worse sack. Um, but the, the what we do see is the incredible um, in, in importance of Rome symbolically. The city of Rome becomes the sort of centre of importance, even though there's an awareness of the fact that her position had changed. So Jonathan, if we go back in time then to the development of Rome as an imperial city, how did it become and and in what period are we talking about when it became the centre for government and for the elites and a centre for for arts and patronage and and this kind of centre of the world? Well, again, it's a a gradual process, but... um, uh, writers of the first century BC are talking about Rome not living up to its status as a as a world capital and not terribly well planned and and, and fairly squalid. Uh, so really, we see patronage from the time of Augustus onwards so in the late first century BC. Um, it becomes part of the um, job description almost of emperors to patronise the city. Uh, they do this by manipulating food prices so that. Um, The mass population is content with that, um, keeping bread and and, and other um, comestibles down. Um, By building large-scale public uh, engineering projects, um, partly for entertainment, partly new aqueducts, things like this, that all provided patronage and, importantly, employment for the population of the city. Um, and really from Augustus onwards, all sorts of administrative mechanisms were put into place that, that really ticked over very efficiently and very effectively uh, through until changes were radically made, uh, perhaps under Diocletian, so in the late 3rd, early 4th century. And Jonathan, what can we learn from a study of this metropolitan architecture that also accompanied it? When I suppose we can we can find out how the how the buildings were made, but I suppose also what they represented and what they were signifying to to Romans and to the world. Absolutely, there there are um, classes of buildings which are fairly useless in many respects. You know, triumphal arches and things like that, which are about display and about communication to the mass population of you know imperial uh, achievements um, but what we see is what has been called an, an architectural revolution uh, and that is from the I suppose early second century BC onwards we have the development of Roman concrete um, using volcanic sands from around Rome and from um, picking up on ideas that develop in the Bay of Naples area and so that we have a combination of really effective building materials, um, a demand for scale, so massive bath buildings and things like that for, for a huge urban population, plus the political will um, to do this sort of imperial patronage. And these come together um, partly in terms of, of the scale of buildings, so uh, things like the Baths of Trajan or the Baths of Caracalla, absolutely huge, uh, but also they are displaying... Uh, to an extent, the the wealth and uh, extent of the empire. So the marbles that are being imported in huge quantities to pave rooms and line their walls and and um, uh, to construct arches and and other 
Columna Monument, um, is there as a, as a, a mute statement of, of Roman power and geographical reach. Um, and this is this is exactly the context into which you have to place things like the Baths of Caracalla, but also things like the Pantheon, um, which um, at 43 metres diameter dome is the largest um, unsupported dome to be constructed in architecture before the 19th century. And did this involve huge long-term planning that people would imagine an, an empty space and say, this is what we're going to put here? And then it might take, I don't know, is it 10 years? Is it 20 years? Or how fast were they at constructing some of these magnificent monuments and buildings? People have done... Um, you know, work time studies, looking at the materials, the brick facings, the marble veneering, um, the quantities of volcanic sand and and lime and other things that are needed uh, for constructing these massive monuments. Uh, And the conclusion tends to be that they were um, quite a limited period of time in which they were actually constructed. Um, Five, six years for something like the Baths of Caracalla, um, four or five years for something like Trajan's Column in Rome. Um, and uh, the the bottom line, I suppose, is that you get an architectural profession and a workforce which is used to doing these um, imperial projects, but also with a, a growing uh, urban population. There's a background chat of the whole time of brick-faced concrete apartment blocks and elite houses and... Um, Domestic architecture, which is a, a, lot, a lot of business, if you like, a lot of employment. Um, and these massive great uh, projects, when they come, are extraordinarily well organised, uh, bearing in mind that many of them are right in the centre of Rome. So the building sites are very constricted. Uh, so they've got to get the materials in, in the right order. Um, they can't you know, close down half of the city to, to store blocks of marble. Uh, they feed them through from the ports of Rome uh, when they're needed. Uh, and it seems that this is a very efficient um, process indeed. Paul, when we talk about Rome, we sometimes overlook the libraries and your new book coming out in September is on the book in the ancient world. And you you learn a lot about the politics and culture of the society by looking at their approach to books, to these codexes and, and their interest in these great libraries. Definitely. In the second century, when Roman generals and going around the, the Mediterranean area, they must have looked with envy at uh, some of the establishments that uh, had sprung up there, not least Pergamon and eventually Alexandria. One of the things that happened quite soon uh, in the second century was that soldiers started to take back uh, certain libraries back to Rome. It was seen as a valid and uh, useful form of war booty uh, to install a library in Rome um, uh, for their own political ends. What really happened was, was um, I suppose, the, the most important person was Aemilius Paulus, who was a rare combination of a rapacious soldier, but also an avid bibliophile. And what he did was relocated the Royal Macedonian Library back to Rome in 167 BC. Uh, that was the start of it. Sulla did the Romans a, a, a rare favour when he acquired the um, library of Apelicon of Teos, which included some of the works by Aristotle. And he as well took uh, the library back to Rome after the sack of Athens in 86 BC. So that established a precedent. Uh, The library was seen as a good thing. It curried political favour. It made you popular amongst your friends and colleagues and acolytes. Uh, And it was also a bit of a vote winner. So by the time of um, Julius Caesar and others, uh, this was one thing that uh, that was on the agenda for uh, for the Roman um, politician to actually involve himself with. Caesar, in fact, did have big plans for for a library, uh, eyeing obviously with some envy the the library at Alexandria, and he realised uh, that this was something that uh, would benefit the populace and also his own political. Uh, credit. Uh, unfortunately, he was assassinated before uh, anything could happen. But he was a friend of uh, Varro, who was another great advocate of the library. And uh, Varro did promulgate 
the, the need for that sort of public service and uh, was, was influential in the construction of uh, libraries and uh, other uh, archives. So how many books were actually in a great library, given that you didn't have printing presses? How difficult was it to, to make books? So how many and what types of publications would be in these? Well, it was, it was difficult to know that. Uh, and, and initially, the old ancient Assyrian libraries obviously just contained what was available for record keeping at the time, and that was a clay tablet. So there were rows and rows and shelves and shelves of clay tablets largely devoted to uh, warehousing, agriculture, storage and such like for temples and palaces. In time, that obviously developed into other forms of uh, record keeping, which was, well, I suppose the codex came right at the end of uh, the Roman period, but um, before that there was parchment and vellum. So you had rows and shelves of parchment uh, manuscripts and such like in places like public baths, because the library had become part of the public amenity. You had rows of these these parchments, and there may have been thousands, who knows? It's difficult, because we can only count what's really been preserved. And they were very, they were very popular amongst the, the, the literate uh, population of big cities. Rebecca, religion is such uh, an important part of life in Rome and it's, it dominates in some ways when you have so many different gods and you have different types of prayers and sacrifices and all that and I just, it must have been an extraordinary change and probably a very traumatic change to move to Christianity that you've suddenly gone from having almost a god for everything to now suddenly a single uh, figure that you pray to. I think sometimes it is framed as as traumatic or something more to do with conflict than maybe it actually was because a lot of the time for people in in the city of Rome, so if we're talking senators in the city of Rome, um, it was a negotiation over time of how how could they be Christian and also maintain their loyalty to the city of Rome or their self-identity as Romans. And a lot of the time it had to be negotiated. And we have to imagine that quite a lot of people didn't have an issue, for example, taking part in festivals as well as being Christian. So we tend to hear pretty hardline voices, for example, those of bishops who try to condemn these kinds of things. But I think for a lot of people, this wasn't the case. And a really good example of this is we have a um, a calendar from the mid fourth century. And we believe it was written, uh, well, put together for a Christian aristocrat and the calligrapher was Christian. And what we have here is Christian lists, so uh, the calculation of the date of Easter. But we also have a calendar with lots of traditional City of Rome festivals, such as the Lupicalia. And it seems that there wasn't necessarily an issue with um, observing both of these things. We might figure it's similar to people who are not practicing Christians who observe Christmas, for example. So I think sometimes it's uh, framed as trauma and conflict when actually it was more of a negotiation and that could take place on on an urban level, but it also took place on an individual level. And people might be on various places on this spectrum. So, and Rome had always, we have to remember, was always fairly open to what we might call, what they might consider foreign cult. And one thing that struck me about was what was being said there is how when we go from the shift of Rome as this very cosmopolitan place, it has the import of people and ideas. It could be enslaved people, it could be books, it could be literal works of art, it could be roof tiles stolen from Greece. But in some cases, it was the importation of gods. We have a case in the Second Punic War when the cult of Magna Mater, who was a Anatolian goddess, was literally imported on a ship to the city of Rome during a time of plague. So there always had been this openness towards towards other cults. And Christianity was tolerated as well as persecuted up to the lead up to this point. And do you think they believed everything? That when Did they believe in the power of sacrifices? Did they believe in... I suppose, did they really believe in in this or was it just something that they went along with because it was tradition? Well, I think belief is a tricky question because I think oftentimes um, it is held up to the the standard of Judeo-Christian um, or religion. What we know is that an emphasis on practice was very, very important. So correct observance of sacrifice, correct uttering of phrases, all of these things. And I think um, they only can only be explained by 
belief. So, but people's people had various different sort of arenas of religion. So we have the you know the big cult of Vesta, for example, in the city of Rome, which was incredibly important. But it would also take place on a household level. So people would have shrines in their individual house, and it also took place on an individual level. So people might have their own religious practices. And um, mainly the the issue with Christianity that came along is it was seen as um, exclusive in that people who some people who practice Christianity would uh, not necessarily want to take part in other cults as well. And that's when the, maybe the, the conflict came into play. Yeah. Very good. Well, tonight we are talking about life, society, culture and entertainment in ancient Rome. We are going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the chariot races, the entertainments and all the glitz and glamour that we associate with Rome. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're talking history and we're talking about life, death, society, culture, religion and everything else in the ancient Roman world. I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel of experts, Dr. Rebecca Usherwood of Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Jonathan Colston of the University of St. Andrews and Paul Crystal, author, history consultant and broadcaster. Jonathan, when we think about Rome, we think about chariot races, theatres, gladiators, all of these things. How significant a part of life were they? So public entertainment um, was very significant. It starts off um, associated with religious cults and their festivals. Um, It becomes associated with um, being appointed to political office, so putting on games to celebrate that. Uh, It becomes uh, associated with triumphs um, and also with funerals. Uh, so displays all sorts of ways that the Roman elite can use festivals, games, general entertainments uh, to up their profile in the public arena, um, uh, to you know thank the populace for, for their support uh, and to display their achievements, whether it's in careers or, or in wars abroad. Uh, and with the funeral games, particularly associated with gladiators, um, those are... Uh, an occasion when you know lifetime achievements can be uh, rehearsed and celebrated, but also the family gets to bask in the reflected glory of of um, the deceased's career. And you mentioned the triumphs there, and they've always intrigued me. What was the point of it? You know, the war had been won, the the foreign war, whatever it was, uh, had been successfully completed. Was it a, just a way of honouring the, the victorious general or was it a way of encouraging and inspiring future generations to try and emulate this success? Yes, the triumphal procession was a, a sort of multi-layered celebration of victory. Um, it, it was sort of in-your-face display of treasures, um, prisoners, captured enemy leaders. Um, uh, some, we don't know the details of this, but deputations from the uh, legions and other military formations involved would get to march through the streets. That was a huge deal because taking soldiers into the centre of Rome um, was a big no-no in legal terms. Um, but uh, this was the one occasion when generals could do this. And the generals themselves, if they were get, given a full triumph, um, and this was only restricted to uh, emperors um, from the uh, Augustan period onwards, um, they got to be in a chariot, dress as Jupiter, uh, and be the absolute focus of uh, sometimes days and days of processions and celebrations with associated um, gladiatorial games and, and, and other displays, feasting, etc. Um, and the, the, the triumphal procession wove its way around Rome, perhaps increasingly um, a set sort of route, uh, but it did a, like a tour of all the major auditoria and went through things like the Circus Maximus in order to get the most number of people v- seeing what was going on. It was like um, trooping of the colour, but uh, with with crowds all the way down the route on both sides. And what about chariot races? Was th- this seemed to be an expensive pursuit? There was huge interest in it. Was it something that was it a bit like horse racing today? It was a, a sporting entertainment, and there seems to have been great prestige attached to it. So sometimes owners, I think, race their own chariots. There was a tremendous uh, kudos in, in chariot racing and the, the Ludi Kirkenses, the games in the circus, 
Um, so you have the Circus Maximus, which has been going since the time of the kings, reputedly, so from the 6th, 5th centuries BC onwards. Um, and that becomes increasingly monumentalised by people like Julius Caesar and Trajan. Uh, so the capacity for seating gets to something like 250,000 people um, watching a, a varied programme, depending on the festival. Um, but the real focus, of course, were the, were the uh, four colour-coded teams. Um, and these become, if you like, the great economic combines that are uh, major football teams nowadays with with the, the memorabilia and the followers and, and the kit colours and things like that. Uh, so uh, an awful lot of interest was, was um, sunk into this. Um, the Romans were great gamblers as well, so lots of informal gambling going on, um, lots of eating, lots of drinking, um, whole days spent, you know, sitting on cushions in the seating, um, enjoying a day out with the whole family sort of thing, or at least um, enjoying a day out where you sat according to your social status. And Rebecca, so it was this, uh, uh, it was a spectacle and an entertainment and great excitement around them. Yeah, I was just going to say that the chariot racing is one of these things. So we see changes over time and chariot racing becomes increasingly important as time goes on. And there are many reasons for this. Um, one argument is that gladiatorial combat is, is, is seen as increasingly incompatible with the Christian empire. But these chariot racing, these factions become incredibly important. But this also um, links to issues of, you know, the way that society is structured, but also the the risk in densely populated areas of, of rioting and you know, disorder. And what we see in, in other cities as well is, for example, major riots which come into being around these chariot groups. So we see... A really famous example is the Nika riot in Constantinople. We have a, a smaller scale one in the fourth century in Thessalonica. But really, there's a sense that there's sort of there's this extra license in these crowds. So we hear a story from uh, the very start of the fourth century of the Emperor Diocletian coming to town. Didn't happen very often. Coming to the city of Rome and not being very happy with what various Roman people uh, were shouting at him when he was appearing in the imperial box. So this is some, there was there was sort of extra license was available. Like this stuff. So there was always this risk that if people group together in these things, that could be, uh, you know, potentially overflow into rioting. And in a world which had no real democratic processes, one of the arguments is that people did resort to rioting because there was very little way of having their voices heard, especially in your like very densely crowded places like the city of Rome. And Jonathan, about gladiator games, how dangerous was it to actually be a gladiator? Were people fighting to the kill? Were they fighting just to to knock down the other person? And I suppose how short a life expectancy did you have if you were a gladiator? Well, there are lots of misconceptions about um, gladiatorial games. As I um, said earlier, they start start uh, uh, connected with with funerary games. Um, And so people have sort of gone down a bit of a rabbit hole about human sacrifice to the spirits and things like that. But um, it becomes um, a connoisseur sport, if you like, um, from the Augustan period onwards, the types of gladiators settle down. So their armour coverage, their weapons, their styles of fencing and fighting um, become readily recognisable, even for people right at the back in the Colosseum or somewhere like this, um, where you know no no opera glasses. Uh, so um, gestures and um, body language has to be fairly clear, and so the pairing of different types of gladiators becomes mildly canonical, um, and the population becomes really get well they really get their eye in just as with modern boxing or uh, um, sumo or whatever um, the audience knows the moves it can judge and 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 value the skills um, so um, people had their favorite type of gladiator um, they had personalities as well so they had the cult of successful gladiators um, and graffiti in places like Pompeii um, have lots of references to gladiators, some of them of sexual nature, uh, but some of them also, uh, together with the gravestones of gladiators we have from around the empire, and particularly in the city of Rome, um, these list the CV, so um, uh, wins, losses, and draws. Uh, so it's not like Thunderdome, where you know two men enter, one man leaves. 
because professional gladiators were extremely valuable, uh, highly trained, um, and you didn't want them being slaughtered um, haplessly. You wanted them showing off their skills. And these skills included um, things like fortitude and strength and constancy, um, all of which were identified as, as Roman virtues. So many of the higher, there's a pecking order within the gladiatorial profession, at the top end were those who fought with the equipment and the fighting style of Roman soldiers. Uh, and other types of gladiators were based on barbarians um, or based on um, sort of artificial activities like the net and trident men. Um, and they were seen very much as low status and quite effeminate because they were lightly armed and they ran away and they um, tried to catch people in nets and things. So it's not just a bloodbath. It's not just blood sport. It's about a reaffirmation of cultural values, uh, strangely. To us. And yet I was reading somewhere that, you know, sometimes maybe one in five or one in ten of the, the contest would end with one of the gladiators being killed. So they're not great odds if that's your if that's your role in life. They're not great odds and good de- good deal of, of blood was spilt, presumably. Um, there were sort of naked um, blood sports, if you like. Um, that that went on in the same arena, so the animal fights, for example, uh, and the execution of criminals. Um, So that was reinforcing, you know, the rule of law and justice, etc. All seems very strange to us, Um, but actually a lot of this is is culturally and legally reaffirming um, rather than, you know, baying crowds of of a sort of Hollywood sword and sandals movie. Paul, I was reading your historical guide to Roman York and you can see from the evidence uh, in uh, in Britain that that from the mosaics and everything else that uh, some of these things then also carried over over to Britain and you have uh, certainly examples of of some of this in terms of the entertainments. Oh, definitely, yeah. York was a very important Roman city and it, it had its baths, it had two or three public baths and private baths, it had its big villas it had its um it had its coliseum somewhere so yeah it it did reflect in some ways the, the largest cities of the roman empire and uh, it was a very attractive place to come to if you were a roman by all accounts the, the other important thing to say is that uh, there is evidence that we have that uh, there were women gladiators who obviously contributed to this major form of entertainment uh, there were women gladiators but women also formed a proportion of the audiences and they're responsible to a large extent for the sexuality of gladiators, which has already been alluded to, but also they, they, they built up the celebrity cult of uh, gladiators and uh, made it an even more interesting form of entertainment for uh, 50% of the Roman population. And is there, any, is there some evidence of gladiators having been beheaded or having lost their heads in combat? There is in York. Um, we, we, we keep digging up um, graveyards, um, graves uh, uh, which contain numerous victims of uh, decapitation. Um, whether they're gladiators, and it, people do suggest that they probably were because of the injuries that were incurred and so on, and the way they were decapitated. Yes, yeah, so it's quite possible that uh, a number of gladiators have been buried in places like York. Yeah, once they've... Uh, gone past their sell-by date or they've been slaughtered in the arena, uh, that's one of the fates that, been, that awaited them. Rebecca, in our conversation this evening, it's becoming clear that there is the real Roman world and there's the Roman world that we see in movies and films like Gladiator and so on. Do you find teaching this that students come with different preconceptions and fixed ideas and that it's hard to maybe uh, separate, you have to first separate them from what they think Rome was about and show them what it really was? Yeah, I mean, I also work as a a consultant for TV, so I'm faced with this um, this sort of question of inaccuracy quite a lot. And in many ways, they're quite fruitful things to use for teaching because you can talk about um, because usually there's no, you know, you know, smoke without fire. And, you know, sometimes it's because people have been uh, had read something in a media outlet, which is sort of reductive and doesn't apply universally. 
Um, and yeah, but it, I, as I as I said, I think it's a really useful way of uh, leaning into these uh, and sort of filling them out and giving this idea of sort of the actual complexity and how this something might be fitting for a particular context, but maybe not in another context. And without naming any names, unless you were particularly proud of the programme that resulted, was there any TV work that you did where you thought that, yes, they, they got this absolutely right or or ones that you thought, actually, it wasn't really like this at all. They're sacrificing too much for the story. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty... Um, I don't enjoy doing the sort of fact checking, telling people that they are right or wrong because um, TV film has to be entertaining. And it, the whole thing is anachronistic. You know, most cases they're speaking English, not Latin. The sets are constructed. It's not real. Um, and so I don't like doing the game of, of being a gatekeeper of knowledge and saying this is right, this is wrong. Um, I really welcome film and TV for um, introducing people to the ancient world and letting them want to know more. I mean, I was um, just going to university for the first time when HBO Rome came out, and that was so important for me becoming interested in the Romans, and I hadn't really been exposed to them so much before. And I really, really enjoy working on on a TV show as well because it gives you a chance of being part of a creative construction that other people might watch and then want to know more about the Roman world. So that's amazing. And we are, of course, tonight talking about life in ancient Rome. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be talking about women in ancient Rome, the legacy of Rome and other aspects as well. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history. And tonight we are talking about life and death in ancient Rome, looking at society, culture, entertainment, religion and lots more besides. My panel of experts, Dr. Rebecca Usherwood of Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Jonathan Colston of the University of St. Andrews and Paul Crystal, whose new book will be published in September, The Book in the Ancient World, How the Wisdom of the Ages Was Preserved. Paul, you've also written about women in ancient Rome. And I was wondering what was like for women? They seem to have been silenced in terms of so many areas. And it's it's difficult sometimes to to find their voice in the records. Um, Yeah, to a large extent, that's very true. And I think it's interesting that you did use the word silent, uh, because silent is what most Roman men that we hear from is what they wanted their women to be, uh, the silent women of Rome, it's a famous paper by uh, Finley. Uh, yeah, and, and, and what that sort of reflects is the fact that uh, if the funerary evidence is uh, anything to go by, and it probably is, uh, you look at these uh, dedications to them, and, and what it says time and time again is that this woman was a great woman because she was unobtrusive and she was inconspicuous. Um, she was, unfortunately, she was in a world run by men for men and uh, didn't really uh, have much of a role to play uh, apart from domestically and in small cases like with the Vestal Virgins in religion. But, but uh, yeah, women were marginalised. Um, their job was to basically get on with the sewing and knitting and, uh, and look after the household and the children. Um, they had no role uh, in, in public affairs, really. Uh, nothing in military, and they had they were politically insignificant because they had no vote. Uh, but that's a bit of a paradox because Latin and Roman history is full of examples where basically women do break the mould. And you can fill a book, as many people have done, with examples of where women have been successful, both in the literary sphere, the political sphere, the legal sphere, and all sorts of spheres. So it is a paradox, and it's very interesting to note just how some women did rise above this mediocrity that was uh, basically what men wanted them to be. Um, I could give you some examples. Uh, the examples of, uh, of women who were obviously quite literate, very well educated, and uh, read books and uh, went to libraries. Uh, uh, there, were, there were women who actually um, were, were involved in high-level uh, court cases in the forum, um, where they where they actually they, they, they espouse the, the 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 importance of women in society and had laws changed so that uh, that, that, that women weren't uh, did not suffer as much as the men wanted them to. Uh, this was a case in the first century where during the civil war um, it was proposed by the second triumvirate that uh, large numbers of well-off women would be uh, would have a super tax imposed upon them. 
this this was at there was a demonstration in Rome by uh, matroni women uh, uh, of, of fairly high status and uh, obviously quite educated and uh, powerful uh, that, that actually reversed that and the number of women who were subject to that tax was reduced quite considerably. So there's a good example of how women did exert power uh, in Rome. Other women um, were uh, very supportive of their very powerful husbands. Porcia, for example, Brutus's wife, uh, helped him enormously. Uh, Livia, of course, which is obviously going to be spoken about later, was a very powerful woman in many respects. She um, uh, and the, 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 the primary paradox is Lucretia and Virginia at the beginning of uh, what we call Roman history. Uh, both have been hijacked by uh, male historians to symbolise the importance of uh, the, the changes that they were, they were they actually affected. Lucretia, of course, was responsible for um, for the downfall of the reviled monarchy, uh, which was a major major factor in early Roman history. And Virginia was uh, one of the one of the actors in the restoration of people power uh, a few uh, decades later. So th- th- there's a sort of a real dichotomy there, and a paradox that men have actually used women. Uh, in these very important and um, very influential uh, aspects of Roman history. The the, the Roman poets uh, in the first century in particular, um, Catullus and then the uh, Propertius Tibullus and Ovid, uh, all revered uh, women of some education and talent. Uh, uh, And and indeed, one of uh, Tibullus's uh, contemporaries, was um, Sulpicia, who herself composed six or seven uh, elegies and uh, was part of that uh, that coterie. Lesbia, uh, we all know from Catullus, uh, was a very important and influential uh, woman, both in terms of her, her education and her intellectualism, uh, but she was also a political figure of some, uh, some significance in, uh, uh, in that period. Fulvia Flatia Bambula was, was was probably even more important. She was the third wife of Mark Antony and was very influential in the later civil wars. Uh, she's famous, of course, for pricking the tongue of Cicero after he'd been uh, executed. She uh, uh, used the uh, one of her hairpins uh, to demonstrate to uh, anyone who wanted to watch um, that basically... Cicero's greatest power was his tongue, being the great orator that he was. And she uh, purposely, and with some symbolism, uh, stuck her hairpin into it and uh, created, obviously, quite a quite an impact there. Women were in, in, important in local politics. There's a woman called Tatia who was instrumental in financing and voting for a statue in Akmenea in central Turkey uh, to celebrate one of their own. Uh, it's not something that we expect Roman women to have been involved in, but there they were. In Pompeii, Eumachia inherited her father's successful brick-making business and was patroness of the Guild of Fullers uh, locally, gifting a large uh, large building during the reign of Tiberius for their head office. Um, Julia Felix owned a local estate in Pompeii and built uh, a number of baths and other civic amenities to actually uh, benefit the uh, local local people. Very good. Rebecca, uh, Paul there mentioned Livia and you're an historical consultant on the Sky Atlantic programme about about her life. Livia, marriage and children are what Rome expects of you. But now I think it'll ask something else. Our family fought to establish the Republic. But now I think we'll have to fight again to keep it. War will come in the end. You guys want to give back power. Like Caesar has defined the Senate, anything could happen. People are sick of war. They'll take a dictator in return for peace. I don't want to be a dictator. I want to be a god. 
restore the Republic, but first we have to destroy it. I need you to understand. Husbands and wives, mothers and children, poison and blood. There's no end to it. All those whispered little secrets. This isn't about protecting the boys. This is about power. It's about everything. Livia Trezilla, this is a very dangerous game. You take it all for granted. You think it's your birthright. It can be stolen from you in a moment. As it was from me. I am the daughter of Marcus Livestrusis. I don't break my word and I don't run. Have you restored power to the Senate yet? I'm trying, Father. Are you? Are you really? Or have you secretly fallen in love with your power? Tell us about the programme and tell us about what's interesting and significant about telling her story in this way. Yeah, I've been working on this project for a, for a really long time now, um, over five years by this point. And for me, it represents a, a great example of what creative retelling can actually do in terms of actually advancing our knowledge about the ancient world in new ways. Because um, it gives us the possibility to lean into um, what the agency of marginalised people, be they enslaved people, freed people or women, might have been. So one example of this is is the imperial family. So we tend to focus on the emperor himself, but the emperor had daughters and sisters and wives. And there is, you know, plenty of possibility that they would have had a, a major impact on political affairs to be able to talk to the, you know, the emperor in this way. And this is, yeah, so I think this is it's a really interesting possibility. And this is what the show Domina explores, was the fact that actually these women um, can be rewritten as more fully fleshed than the perfect image of them as sort of uh, silent wool, wool spinners of some of the funerary um, orations or inscriptions. And actually people who can very carefully um, walk the line between appearing to be silent and appearing to be submissive, but actually wield power over political process in many different ways. And I think this is something that fiction can give us the possibility of exploring for the new, uh, you know, in a, in this sort of, and it kind of falls into this idea of sort of feminist retellings of history that we're seeing in historical fiction on film and TV as well. And I think it's a really interesting contribution to make to how we see uh, people in the ancient world more broadly. So Jonathan, we can see we can have a positive approach to to these films and, and various forms of historical fiction because they are introducing new audiences to the ancient world. Guys, guys. Your fame is well-deserved, Spaniard. I don't think there's ever been a gladiator to match you. As for this young man, he insists you are Hector reborn. What's it, Hercules? Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. How dare you show your back to me? Slave! will remove your helmet and tell me your name. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. But there also are making quite important points as well in terms of the themes that are covered. Yes, absolutely. There's there's a lot that I think, if, if presented clearly, would surprise uh, and excite the modern viewing uh, audiences. Um, a lot of my research has been into military equipment and costume and 
body language and identity and things like this. And um, it's something that is constantly got wrong, whether it's dealing with soldiers or dealing with gladiators. Uh, and my view is not totally, I'm totally agreeing with um, Rebecca here. We're not gatekeepers of knowledge, but we are facilitators. Um, and um, I think that if, if you know, another Sword and Sandal, Sandals film or another gladiator film or whatever um, is made uh, and if one was given free reign of the costume, um, then I think um, the results, with a bit of courage from the filmmakers, would be so different from the um, sword and sandal expectations. Because um, I, th I think I think wardrobe departments, I think directors, do a disservice to the viewing public. They they think the viewing public are ignorant and uh, and expect things on a plate, whereas actually there are vast numbers of people out there who are you who who are um, um, enthusiasts who are hobbyists who are amateur historians if you like and who read voraciously and they know quite well what goes on in the ancient world and what people were wearing and doing um, and so what I would think is is if actually a lot of this was got visually right um, it would be the equivalent of putting the bad guy stormtroopers in white armour in the Star Wars uh, universe which was such a leap of, of change of of, of paradigm uh, so I think if if um, the reflection of what people wore and, and used to, to fight and display and to strut um, was got right it actually would be a, a great enhancement of, of movie communication if you like and finally, Rebecca, why is it that the ancient world and the world of Rome uh, inspires us so much? Why is it that we're drawn to these stories, whether on TV or on film or in books or on podcasts or radio programmes, that it is a period of history that does capture our imagination? I think it's um, that thread of common humanity. So when we're reaching back that far, uh, we're seeing people who are you know, modern humans whose brains work the same way as ours, but in a in a really different cultural context. And yet we have these threads of continuity running through. I mean, one of the reasons why I really uh, was so fascinated by um, Christianity or the, the, the point at which the Roman Empire becomes Christian is because you see the formation of something which has had an enormous impact and continues to have an enormous impact on the modern world. So, and I, I just, I, I just think it's absolutely wonderful that I get to talk about the Romans with my students every day and that they come to university and want to learn more and more about it. I just think it is a wonderful, constant fascination for a lot of people and it brings a lot of people together. Okay, well, I think that's a wonderful note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Dr. Rebecca Usherwood of the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Jonathan Colston of the School of Classics at the University of St. Andrews, and Paul Crystal, author, history consultant and broadcaster. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.